You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. What's a couple seconds between friends? Uh, Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Welcome to the show today. And here's what's ahead. Rally on. Stocks are surging on optimism about reopening the economy and some positive COVID-19 vaccine news. The S&P is back over 3,000 and back above a key trend line. And we'll have the latest on that. Plus, play ball. We're going to speak with the Chicago Cubs chairman and co-owner Tom Ricketts on when baseball's coming back and the battle going on with players over that. And later, could it be one market strategist can make the case for a V-shaped recovery and a much stronger stock market than most think? We'll have all of that for you. But first, let's get inside today's rally. Bob Bassani is here with more for us. Bob? And we're back over 3,000, Kelly. In fact, that is essentially the 200-day moving average for the S&P 500. So we're sitting just off of the highs for today. But I think that break over uh, 3,000 is certain important psychologically in getting over the 200-day moving average. I mentioned just off the highs. Just want to show you the S&P midday. We were getting even stronger. And then a little bit of downside. Uh, Mr. Kudlow came out uh, saying... Uh, uh, the trade deal is no longer a priority, made some comments on that. We saw we dipped a little bit, but it hasn't dramatically broken the overall momentum. This is about reopening and about the vaccine, as Kelly told you. Look at these travel and entertainment stocks. Uh, uh, CCL, a Carnival here, was it's essentially doubled. It was $8 just a short while ago, a month or so ago. United Air is up dramatically. That was, uh, what, $18 a month or two ago, and that's doubled too. Live Nation was $25 a month and a half ago. Uh, so you see these stocks have all been rallying here. Dow leadership is banks and industrials. These are uh, the sectors that have been lagging, and they are the ones that have been doing the best the last week or so. And you can see they're all to the upside today. Fang, not a big contributor. Microsoft, the only stock in the Dow that's down today. So why are we rallying? Remember those buckets I tend to think of, three or four uh, parts of the market or issues that always move the market. Look what's going on today. Reopening is broadening out, number one. Uh, the vaccine, we've had the Merck and Novavax uh, advances, or at least hopes there. And the stimulus, McConnell is talking about a fifth relief package likely. So you get three big buckets there that move the market. No wonder we got a nice rally. Guys, back to you. You know, Bob, we also have the New York Stock Exchange partially reopening the trading floor today. I saw they had Governor Cuomo uh, to ring the opening bell. Uh, but they're only having a very few people back on the floor. And I noticed they're not even letting you come to work on the floor. And if you've come from mass transit, which I think has interesting implications for the rest of the city getting back to work. Yeah, it sure does. So uh, th- th- they're going to lift that, that mass transit uh, ban. Uh, you can't show up if you take a mass transit once the lockdown expires. But right now you take the subway, you can't really get in. Uh, it was a coup to get Governor Cuomo there today. Kudos to them, important development. But there's still a lot of restrictions. And, Kelly, only about a quarter of the actual floor brokers are back. So there's only about 80 people there. It's pretty quiet overall. The designated market makers or DMMs that actually make the markets and stocks that have the, uh, the, the big posts there, they're not back yet here uh, and probably won't be back for several weeks at the minimum. They're doing temperature checks, uh, not coronavirus tests, and you're going to require to sign a legal indemnification Uh, when you go into the door. So no public transportation allowed here. The question is, when do we get a broader reopening? And I think, Kelly, uh, they're going to wait a couple weeks, see how it goes, make sure there's no reinfections on the floor, and then they'll start talking about bringing more people back. But remember, the people coming back, they're bigger companies. They're uh, designated market makers. You've got other companies like J.P. Morgan. uh, And it remains to be seen how comfortable they are with everybody coming back. So it's a gradual process. 
pretty a big step. That's amazing. You have to sign a legal indemnification when you walk through the door. I mean, the, I wonder how long that will last, too. But I also wanted to point out this tweet from our friend Jay Woods, who's one of the floor guys who's not back to work yet. But Bobby he had a really interesting point. If you bought the market on the day that the NICE closed the floor and then sold it when they reopened, I mean, you'd be up 25 percent. It's just, you know, again, a lot of the times when once these announcements are made, the market has already priced a lot of that in. And now we're kind of coming through the other side of that. And we're fortunate that we've gotten good news on the vaccines and treatment. We've gotten tremendous news in terms of the aggressiveness of the Fed uh, and the stimulus program. And so far, the reopening is going well. Everything is rolling in the bull's favor. Remember, pain trade is up. A lot of people thought it wasn't going to roll out so smoothly. And so a lot of people are caught on the other side right now. That's fueling the rally there, Kelly. And we'll talk to our next guest about, you know, whether you should... Uh, sell the market now, so to speak, uh, whether we're quote-unquote at the top. Bob, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Bob Bassani okay. uh, with the very latest there. Uh, we have a lot of factors playing into the market today. Good news potentially on a vaccine uh, that's continuing to help the rebound. I guess the question is how much of that success is already priced in as the S&P crosses the 3,000 mark today above its 200-day moving average. I'm joined by Jim Paulson, who's chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group, and Janelle Woodward is head of fixed income at BMO Global Asset Management. It's great to see you both. Jim, let's talk Talk about some of these levels. Is it a big deal to you that the S&P is back above the 200-day moving average for the first time since March 5th? Well, uh, for me, not so much. I'm more uh, fundamental and technical, but I I think it is important for the market as a whole because I think there's a lot of uh, technicians that uh, certainly look at that as overhead resistance if and we've broken through that. If we can close above it, I think it just adds with everything else you've just mentioned, uh, Kelly, to the, the level of optimism. Um, You know, like I said, there's a lot of good things going on. You know, this is the first time in this crisis that the news flow is predominantly good. And and if you think ahead with reopening, it's likely to remain that way for a while. And that's something new in this crisis, uh, really facing bad news the whole time. And the real issue is going to be at what point is the whatever's optimism is coming down the road. What what point is that priced in? It's not going to be a straight line, but I think we've started a new bull market and a new economic recovery, and I'm not sure that it's going to peak out for good here. I think it's still got more upside. Yeah, and we'll come back to that, but Janelle, is obviously look at things more from the fixed income side. Do you get the same kind of you know, optimism uh, from some of these market moves? Because if anything, people keep pointing to the level of bond yields, you know, the 10-year, for example, and say, okay, we can be a little bit more hopeful about the shape of this rebound this year, but it's still suggesting a really tough slog in the years to come. Yeah, we do see the optimism. I mean, we certainly see it today. We see credit spreads coming in, especially in those cyclical sectors, energy, materials, consumer discretionary. Uh, We see rates a little bit higher. So we do see that same theme. Um, But overall, we would say that fixed income markets, credit markets in particular, have underperformed equities a little bit in here. And a lot of this comes back to market function and liquidity. And I think the other reason for optimism across fixed income markets is what the Fed has done and continues to do. There's a number of facilities that have been announced that are still being implemented. And so we think that there's going to be near-term support for a lot of segments of credit markets in particular as we look forward. Yeah, and you are interested in one area that actually a few of our fixed income guests have been recommending lately, which kind of makes sense, but is also interesting every time you see the headlines, and it's municipal bonds. So is this all predicated on, hey, there's still value to be found because, you know, the buying is, is still yet to to begin. Um, Actually, as I ask about that, let me pause this for a moment, bring in Rick Santelli. 
because we just had an auction of two-year Treasury notes. Uh, Rick, obviously, everyone's interested in, in these results and how they're moving the market. Yeah, you know, the, once again, a very solid auction. Nothing too out of the ordinary, but Charlie Plus, C Plus the Great, $44 billion in two-year notes, kicking off $127 billion in supply. The yield at the Dutch auction, 0.178, so a whisker under 18 basis points. And we had above-average bid to cover at 2.68. Indirects at 53.1 was just a, a 3% higher than normal. The only real lacking area was direct bidders at 14.8. Dealers take 31 point, uh, 32.1%, roughly a 10 auction average. So, of course, we have fives and sevens yet to follow. Solid new home sales today and confidence held up. A C-plus auction isn't bad. Short maturities are get kind of boring for investors. They like playing further down the curve. Fives and sevens should get a little bit more interesting, Kelly. Back to you. All right, Rick, thank you, sir. Rick Santelli with the two-year results. And Janelle, so I'll turn back to you and, and, and re-ask the question, which is quite simply, why municipal bonds? Yeah, I think when we look at these facilities and what's been announced and, and not been implemented, we've not seen the municipal liquidity facility be implemented. And we think there's still probably more room to go in terms of fiscal support of local and state governments as well. And so when we look across markets, we look at risk of defaults, we look at historical default rates, and we go down into some of the A-rated, triple B-rated municipal securities, uh, we do think that there's value there. And we think that as liquidity continues to flow through these markets, those opportunities are going to be realized and it's an attractive time for investors to take a look at these segments. All right, Jim, let me circle back to you. So you, know, you were explaining why you're you know, more optimistic about the market and you do think we can continue to rally from here. But you said something at the very beginning that, that made me pause because anytime the news flow all starts to run more optimistic, it's kind of like the, the economic surprise index. You know, once everything starts surprising to the upside, it can only last for so long. And then there's going to be mean reversion and, and maybe kind of moving back down towards the disappointment phase. What happens if we're about to experience that for a period of time? Well, I, I, I agree with that, Kelly. Um, I, I, I think that this is the first time you could say optimism is about in the markets. And whenever that comes around, it means risk is probably up for the, one of the first times. I don't think it's going to be a straight line. I think we're going to bounce. We'll have other periods of where news is disappointing. I think that's true. But I do think we've, we maybe have started a, a fresh bull here. You know, one indicator that I just wrote about this morning in my letter that is not out there is that in April, and then it, it got even better this morning with the release of the conference board's consumer confidence, the expectation component now in consumer confidence exceeds the present situation component. And every time since 1980 that that's happened, uh, it's marked the start of a fresh bull market. Hmm. So we went from this is the first time where ex expectations in the future, right. consumers are more confident about that than the current. It happened in the early 80s, in the early 90s, in the early 2000s, and it happened right at the start of 2009 of that bull market. And here it is again happening. I think it says something that people now are, feel better about the future than the present. That's typically the start of a bull. Interesting. Jim, you always bring a good uh, anecdote for us just like that. Um, thank you both, uh, Jim and Janelle, for a discussion today. We appreciate it. Jim Paulson and Janelle Woodward. We have some headlines coming in from Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan. Uh, he's speaking over at Deutsche Bank's Global Financial Services Conference. Wilfred Frost has those for us. Will? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's ongoing, uh, the, uh, the presentation. Let's uh, listen into what he just said a moment or two ago about the dividend at J.P. Morgan. Recession that a lot of banks in particular and other companies, but banks continue to pay very outsized dividends going into a crisis. 
and they depleted too much of their capital by doing that. Remember, this time around, the real capital being used is buyback stock, and all the banks stopped that. And you know, people are a little misguided when they talk about dividends. It's a drop in the bucket. So we just announced our dividend for this quarter. You know, it's less than $3 billion, like 0.15% of our capital base. If you take the base case, what I was just talking about, the kind of the base assumption that economists have out there, you know, we will earn quite a bit of money this year. Obviously, it'll be down a lot, but that's a lot of money. Why do you cut your dividend and then you just have to increase it right away, you know, to meet that obligation of shareholders? And of course, you don't really need it either because you still have a lot of excess capital. So the better course of action was to wait, you know, and to see. And if you go, if the recovery starts, and we, I, like I said, I think we have a pretty good idea when we report earnings, then you don't, you will never need to cut your dividend. If by any chance that is pretty clear that this is going to get worse dramatically, then of course the board will take up the issue and say, you know, what should we do? When should we do it? How should we do it? Uh, you know, if they have to, if a board is mature, they, they'll consider that. But you have to have a pretty bad economic environment, I think, for banks to justify their boards and their shows that we should cut it now. There, uh, Jamie Diamond there. We missed the, 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 the key part of the top saying it's important for companies to sustain uh, their dividends. On buybacks, uh, he uh, also said uh, doesn't expect them to come back anytime soon, but some banks, he said, might do it in a small way, but would want to be the other side of the recession uh, to see that. A few other key comments that have come out uh, from this presentation, Kelly, which, by the way, has taken the stock price to session highs on the consumer saying overall, relative to expectations and some of those headlines uh, on unemployment numbers, that the consumer is in relatively good space and hopes the consumer will come back strongly as and when people uh, go back into work if they have been furloughed. On the point of mortgage forbearances, again, he was optimistic that anyone that has taken forbearance will actually be able to pay down what they owe fairly quickly when they start repaying it. Uh, and on the investment bank, trading, he said, was as good as Q1 so far in Q2. So uh, th those strong sort of offsets to the uh, um, earnings in Q1 perhaps will come through in Q2 uh, as well. It is ongoing, that presentation. As I said, the share price up sharply today, 8% uh, percent or so, and uh, near the session highs, dragging the bank's index up intraday as well. You know, I was going to ask about that, Will. If we had really strong performance even prior to those comments, it, it's not because of this conference. It's presumably, it's just, you know, that's the, the trade we have today. Uh, absolutely. I think the underperformers benefiting, if you're getting hopeful, uh, as we've seen fairly often, uh, hopeful that the economy is going to reopen earlier uh, than previously expected. It's uh, those that are cyclically linked to the economy, like banks, and those that have underperformed the most so far, like banks that are uh, enjoying a bounce. And don't forget, the KBW Banks Index is still down sharply year-to-date relative to uh, any of those outperformers uh, like the Nasdaq. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting to hear him explain the dividend and why he thinks they have plenty of coverage. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks very much, Wilfred Frost, with the latest. As J.P. Morgan shares, like you said, are up about 8% today. And I believe financials are the strongest sector in the market. Coming up, tensions with China are heating up as the U.S. warns of potential sanctions following their move to gain more control in Hong Kong. What's at stake for U.S. companies and the whole trade deal if this continues? Plus plus one plus why one market strategist says a V-shaped recovery is possible and what it would take to make that happen. Before we go, take a look at some of the retail names that are also surging today. Capri Holdings up 12%. Ralph Lauren adding 10%. Macy's up 15%, albeit to about $6 a share. Gap up 9%, just around $9 a share. The exchange is back in a couple.
Welcome back to The Exchange. China is pushing back against possible U.S. sanctions over their new security law for Hong Kong. Their state-run newspaper, The Global Times, calling the U.S. threat, quote, nothing but bluffing. So can investors ignore this, or will it all heat up faster than many think? Joining me now is Fred Kemp, the president and CEO of the Atlantic Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, uh, great to have you here. And I, I know you've also written about China's maybe using a digital currency to kind of reclaim uh, its place in the in the global uh, sort of financial system, if we will. But I just want to start on this very kind of political back and forth over the fate of Hong Kong. And how involved do you think the U.S. is ultimately going to be? Well, I think that uh, President Xi is wagering that the U.S. has so much on its mind right now dealing with COVID-19, dealing with the elections, that he can actually accelerate uh, in any way he can the geopolitical shift in China's favor. And Hong Kong certainly is an important piece of that. And they'll watch how the U.S. responds to that. And if they feel that they've managed that kind of response, then I think you have to start watching areas more uh, serious, even more serious, uh, like Taiwan. Uh, but as you mentioned, I, I think that you're seeing President Xi move forward on a whole slew of various issues. And it's all about using what was a setback, which was COVID-19 started in China, uh, to turn it absolutely into an opportunity, new investments in technology, emerging technologies, AI, quantum computing, et cetera, uh, new investments in the military. They'll increase their military spending up to 9% this year. And then, as you said, they've launched uh, a, 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 an experiment in digital currency in four cities in April. And that has put them way ahead of the United States in terms of uh, creation of anything like a digital dollar. So should U.S. investors just kind of watch all this and go, OK, sounds great. Bottom line, do I you know, worry about my supply chain? Can I continue to sell Nike shoes and have Starbucks locations and sell Apple iPhones in China? Um, or or are, is the relationship fundamentally changing? Is the way that I kind of think about this country need to be different? And, and we know that's already taking place. So I guess the more concrete question, too, is what happens with the with the trade deal, which, frankly, I, it's hard to understand if changing the trade deal would cause major disarray again or just become, OK, yep, another event for us to, you know, to deal with on the U.S.-China front? Yeah, Kel, I'm not sure you want to listen to me on markets. I mean, the Hong Kong market is up today or uh, who would have right, thought? Right. And, and the U.S. markets are where they are when you look at the overall economy. So so uh, I'm not quite sure what's going to drive traders. I think the decoupling from the U.S. economy, the Chinese economy, here's the problem. China is coming at its grab for global uh, economic and political dominance over time in a patient way with a strategy. We're countering it and we're answering it without a strategy. Uh, we should be pouring our stimulus uh, money into funding new technology, digital technology, education and science and math and engineering. We should be pouring this into the future right now, but we're so focused on the present that we're not building the future. China isn't even willing to set a, a, a growth figure for this year in its National People's Congress. But at the same time, they're investing in the future. So I would say to investors uh, to keep watching the Chinese market because the notion that the U.S. can actually get other allies and other friends to decouple with us, I think is far-fetched. Oh, uh, too yeah. many people have too much at stake with China uh, to pull out of that market. Well, not just that, but, you know, even as you're describing that China has this vision and this plan and all of this, stuff, I mean, for global dominance, you know, I don't think America, I mean, does anybody here even want to raise their hand and assert that that should be a goal that we pursue? I mean, how do you articulate what the real threat is to American uh, interests? And obviously, there's a good part of the country that fundamentally, instinctively understands this, uh, but you're not going to find a lot of this viewpoint in circles in, you know, 
Washington or in think tanks or in the media. I mean, that's just not it's, it's not seen as an important thing for for the U.S. leadership to be thinking about. Well, the, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a comic from the 1960s uh, where there's a character named Pogo and a very famous quote, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I think that's what the U.S. has to think about right now, our divisive politics, our polarized politics, uh, the fact that we're not investing in infrastructure the way we should be while China's been investing in infrastructure. If we did all of those things, we will do just fine in the future. Let's not forget authoritarian structures tend to be brittle. Uh, you never know when something could go wrong in China. Uh, they have a debt load that's built up. Uh, they are having, they, they are going to lose a lot of their supply chain and manufacturing base because people are going to diversify. People are going to maybe not climb entirely out of the Chinese market, but they're certainly going to hedge their bets yeah. elsewhere. And so if we just focused on ourselves right now and took care of what we can stimulate, then I think we'd be okay. The last point I just wanted to make, Arthur Brooks this morning was on Squawk Box and he said, you know, the way to handle this like adults is for the U.S. basically just kind of slowly and gradually decouple, so to speak, and you know, especially in, in those industries that are of national importance, like pharmaceuticals. I mean, do you think that's the answer? In which case, there could be a lot of industries and retail and other places where they say, yeah, we can just keep on, you know, supplying stuff in China, selling stuff in China. The rest of it's not really our problem. Yeah, the, the, the notion, Kelly, that 80 percent or 90 percent of all of our antibiotics should be sourced with Chinese materials. Who, who didn't look at that earlier? So, of course, we should be decoupling in areas that are of national security importance. And we never would have thought before this pandemic that health area was one of national security importance, but it is. And But then limit those areas, make them in the militarily sensitive areas and in the technologically highly sensitive areas. But don't expect that the entire world is going to go along with a, with a complete decoupling mm. from the Chinese economy. A lot of our top trading partners are number one or two trading partners. They have China as the other one or two mm -hmm. trading partner. The other thing that Arthur Brooks said, which I thought uh, was really smart, is we are carrying a big, sorry, we're speaking loudly and carrying a small stick right. instead, of, and, 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 and instead of speaking softly and carrying a stick. And so I think what we have to do is talk less about what we're doing and just really get down to coming up with a long-term strategy as we did with the Soviet Union. Yeah. And this is a pure competitor, a lot more uh, dynamic, a lot more economically nimble, uh, a, a lot stronger on the global chain stage than the Soviet Union ever was. Well, and I don't think we're going to be speaking softly with the campaign season upon us, Fred. Uh, but your point is taken regardless. That, that's a real downside, Kelly. I mean, the, people are going to Biden will try to outdo uh, Trump. I just hope one of the two of them comes up with a strategy that can last. Yeah. Fred, uh, always good to check in with you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Fred Kemp is president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. We actually have some breaking news right now on Apple store openings. Let's get Josh Lipton in with more on that. Josh. So, Kelly, Apple just now announcing it's going to be opening more stores, reopening this week here in the U.S., they say. A total of about 100 more Apple stores reopening, crisscrossing the country, it sounds like, from California, Florida here, Oregon to Indiana. That would bring the total to about 130 stores in the U.S. that have now reopened. Remember, Apple operates 510 stores around the world, 271 in the U.S. alone. Most of these stores will reopen for curbside and storefront only, um, so meaning customers don't enter the store, Kelly. Customers use the stores maybe to pick up orders or drop off 
drop-off devices at the Genius Bar. Apple saying in a statement here, we are committed to reopening our stores in a very thoughtful manner with the health and safety of our customers and teams as our top priority, and we look forward to seeing our customers again soon. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton with the news on Apple reopening more stores here. Coming up, play ball. That's the hope for fans, players, and teams as states begin to reopen. We'll speak with Chicago Cubs co-owner Tom Ricketts about what exactly we can expect. Plus, the work-from-home double tax trouble, a look at why the shift to remote working is creating new tax headaches. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening. St. Louis Mayor Lydia Crewson is joining a group of Missouri officials calling on the Lake of the Ozarks Memorial Day partiers to self-quarantine for 14 days after ignoring social distancing guidelines over the weekend. Images of a jam-packed pool party in the region led county officials to issue a travel advisory and urge local employers to screen workers. Sweden is defending its virus response and rejecting a mortality measurement that shows it as having one of the highest death rates in the entire world. The country has faced criticism for its more lenient approach to the outbreak, which allowed restaurants and some schools to remain open. And dentists are considering using UV light technology to safely reopen their practices. Ultraviolet light is already widely used as a disinfectant in hospitals and larger medical facilities. There's more on that at CNBC.com. Kel, back yes, to you. Such a hassle uh, going back for a lot of these, even routine appointments now. Absolutely. Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera. The shift to remote work is also creating new tax headaches for both companies and their employees. Of course it is. Uh, Elon Moy joins me now with those important details. Elon? Well, Kelly, working from home can lead to double the tax trouble. And that's because for employees, where you pay state income tax depends on where you work, not on where you live. And for a lot of people, those are two very different places. For example, you might work in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, but live in New York City. Now, right now, we're all working from home. And so that means that technically, New York would have the right to tax all of the income that you earned while you were logging in from your basement, trapped in your husband's man cave, and wearing your bathrobe. Governor Andrew Cuomo has even signaled that he does intend to go after every single one of those dollars as he tries to close the state's massive budget shortfall. Now, for businesses, having a remote workforce spread across the country means they could face corporate income tax in all of those states, even if they don't normally do business there. So the question is whether having one remote worker could constitute nexus for the state to start imposing taxes. Now, of course, Kelly, there has been legislation proposed on Capitol Hill to address all of these issues. No movement on them yet, but perhaps the pandemic could change that dynamic. You Back know, this was going to be memorable anyway, but especially with the bathrobe, Elon. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's very cozy. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I could use one. Uh, Elon Moy, we appreciate it. And check with your employer, everybody. Uh, coming up, another streaming service hits the screen with HBO Max launching, but with the highest price tag, tons of competition, production stoppages, and states reopening, is the launch ill-timed. We're going to speak with the man in charge of that product ahead. Plus, some staggering new housing numbers that suggest the recovery is closer than we think. We'll have the latest. And take a look at the Casino stocks seeing a nice rally today. Uh, gains of 7 to almost 10% in the case of Melco, the Nevada Gaming Board, meeting today to lay out protocols for reopening them. Nevada's governor is pushing for next week. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's up 670 points right now, also by far the outperformer of the major averages. Let's go over to Dom Chu for a check on that and some more, Dom. All right, so Kelly, the bulls are in charge, at least for now, with the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ, as you can see here, up about 1% to almost 3% overall. Now, for the Dow, it's up nearly 40% since those lows that we saw back on March 23rd. If you look at the S&P 500, it's now above its longer-term trend line right now. You can see there that 200-day average price that sits right at 3000 sitting at 3013 in real time. Financials, industrials, energy, as you can see, leading the way higher. Meanwhile, you've got consumer staples, technology, and healthcare, the relative laggard so far today. Now, a few of the stocks you'll want to watch, follow me over here, include Citizens Financial, which is one of those regional banks that's leading the financials higher, some of that incremental optimism and slightly more constructive interest rate environment helping there. Then you've got oil and gas companies like Chevron, up big here, also catching that same lockdown easing tailwind as oil prices rise on prospects for more fuel demand. And then we're going to end on airlines like American Airlines up as well as travel and leisure companies try to work their way back, back off very depressed levels. Remember, there was a time, Kelly, when we used to say rising oil prices were bad for airlines, but a rising tide lifts all boats. Back over to you. Yeah, everything's different these days, Dom. Thanks very much. America is still waiting for the return of baseball. So far, there's a proposal for an 82-game season starting in July with no fans. The players have yet to sign off on it, though. Even if there's half a season, the financial damage has been done for many teams. The Chicago Cubs are estimated to lose at least $100 million this season, even with half a season, if no fans. Here to talk about the path forward for sports and baseball is Tom Ricketts, the chairman and co-owner of the Chicago Cubs. And he joins us from Wrigley Field, and it is great to have you, sir. Welcome. Uh, it's good to be here. As you can see, uh, Wrigley Field is not quite being used what we uh, we expected to use it for this year. Instead of uh, instead of playing the Marlins tonight, we have turned the, the ballpark into uh, the largest food pantry in Chicago with our partners at uh, Lakeview Pantry. Yeah, which is so, fantastic. Um, yeah, we hear so much about food insecurity right now. The lines for some of these food pantries have been insane so at least that you know gives a, an important community function in the meantime and then everybody tom yep. is saying when can we expect to be back in the stadium for ball games or or can fans expect at all to be back in the stadium this year will there be games what are the players going to accept i mean there, there are some big stumbling blocks here yeah I mean, there's a lot of questions i think everyone in is uh intent on getting baseball back on the field even if it is without fans but there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into that I mean, first and foremost is the safety of the players and the other people that need to be in the park during the games, even if there aren't fans. And, um, you know, the, the league has put together a very thorough uh, safety protocol, 67 pages. It's being reviewed by the teams. Uh, it's being reviewed by the players union. Uh, hopefully that will get to that will get to the point that everyone is comfortable with it and comfortable that we have a safe work environment. Um, hopefully. That will be uh, enough to get each of the local uh, jurisdictions, the different states or cities to sign off so that um, so everyone will feel like it's a safe enough right. place for our players and personnel to go. And uh, then we have to you know, work through the finances of it all. Right. And that's so going to be tricky because the, the economics are super interesting here. I mean, if 70 percent of the revenues in some cases, I think like yours, come from game day sales and now all of a sudden you're not going to have fans. Well, if you play those games, don't get that revenue and have to pay the players, you're going to be in a huge hole. So are you trying to figure out a way to pay the players, you know, a lower percentage, maybe, you know, something to say, hey, you know, we appreciate you. You are here. Um, or does it have to are they saying, no, it has to be 100 percent for us to show up. I mean, this gets really interesting. Well, that is the discussion. I mean, ultimately, the, the league 
uh, as a whole is looking at about $4 billion of losses. And that's particularly hard on like teams like the Cubs. As you say, we do get 70% of our revenue from tickets, parking, concessions, game day activities, and only about 30% of our revenue from media. Um, and that's only, and only part of that is national media. So like the local television that we do. Now we've already lost half that season. So in a best case scenario, you know, we're looking at, you know, recovering maybe 20% of our total income. Um, so that, that is where the rub is, and that's where the, where the discussions will, will so go with the players over the next few weeks. My, my question is, would you even want a season under those conditions, or would it be better for you to say, you know what, this year Wrigley Field is a food pantry? Well, hopefully it can be uh, a no-fan ballpark and a food pantry at the same time. But, the, um, uh, you know, we'll have to see how it goes, but, but we'd definitely like to see baseball back. We'd like to see, um, like to see the team back on the field. I know the players want to play. I, I, I know the manager wants to manage, and I know um, I know even if it's on television only, I think people want to see baseball back. What, what would you say in terms of what some of the other sports are considering? You know, the NBA is reportedly looking at maybe putting everybody in Disney, kind of the bubble, or what are they calling it, the campus experience. I think baseball has been looking at maybe some regional um, opportunities to, to sort of clusters where people would – they're only allowed, I think, to take the bus back and forth. There's no locker rooms. I mean, behind the scenes, this would be very, very different experience. Well, the NBA and the NHL have a totally different set of facts. I mean, they got through about 80% of their season. So, um, you know, they can, they can finish up with a tournament or just play some games in one location to kind of wrap that up. We're very different. We didn't even start. So, I mean, the financial impact on baseball is, is even more dramatic than on the other sports. But you talk about the schedule – uh, I think the league is being thoughtful and creative about ways to get, um, you know, to get get us playing again with schedules that maybe involve a little less travel. Um, but we want to play in our own ballparks. We don't want to play in a, in a tournament setting like uh, like the NHL or NBA are looking at. So, um, but hopefully that will, you know, we're, those those discussions are ongoing, and hopefully pretty soon we'll have some resolution on that. What would you say, just kind of best guess, is that we have a baseball season this year and that we have it as soon as even July 4th? I mean, is that out of the question? No, it's not out of the question at all. Uh, it really comes down to um, how quickly and efficiently the, uh, you know, the, the league and the union can get together and kind of hack through the, the, the issues. Right. And how much maybe the players are willing to accept to show up and, and so on and so forth. Well, we know the damage. Certainly one of the issues, yeah. Yeah. And the financial losses. Yeah, I know you guys, those are going to be issues for, for another year, but they're certainly going to be a big headache. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for joining me today. Good luck with it. And thanks at least for doing what you're doing in the meantime, you know, serving the community. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Tom Ricketts is the chairman and co-owner of the Chicago Cubs. Coming up on Power Lunch, billionaire Tillman Fertitta. 270 of his restaurants are open, two casinos, his pulse check on the economy, and we'll ask him about plans for the basketball season are coming up. Coming up, HBO Max debuts tomorrow. It's the most expensive streaming service to hit the market and is entering an already very crowded field. We'll talk to the owner, Warner Entertainment, and direct-to-consumer chairman Bob Greenblatt about timing, content, and competition next.
Welcome back. Stocks are soaring today and have been lately on optimism about potential coronavirus vaccines and on the reopening front. The Dow is up more than 2%. The S&P climbing back above 3,000 for the first time since March. Is this a signal that a V-shaped recovery is still possible? Joining me now is Michael Darda, chief economist and macro strategist at MKM Partners. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. I, I feel bad because I'm, you know, this was such an out of consensus view a couple of weeks ago. And I feel like by the time we're having this discussion today, don't you think it's almost become more of people? People don't think you're as crazy as they once did, I bet. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Uh, certainly the, you know, the market has been making a V pattern upward and there's been a tremendous amount of skepticism about that. But we're just starting now to see some evidence uh, in the data turning, obviously, you've been reporting on some better than expected housing numbers, uh, but we're seeing it in, in other places, too. As reopenings get underway uh, in virtually all states now, we're starting to see activity bounce off of very low levels. Yeah, and there's something I think fundamentally that you ex use to explain all this that people really need to know about, which is if you look at this from the monetarist point of view and compare it with what happened in 08, back then all the Fed's efforts didn't really get M2 or other money supply measures growing much. This time around, they are having more traction. Um, to you, does that say not only is, is a V-shaped recovery possible, um, but I'm curious what you would say this tells us about what it might look like after that. You know, are we still going to have a, a weak economy for the next two years? Well, I sure hope not. Uh, it does appear that the Fed is getting more traction this time than at least in the opening innings uh, of the crisis response during 2008. So if you rem remember uh, the back half of 08, the Fed's balance sheet went up by two and a half fold, yet broad money measures were barely moving forward, four or five percent growth. Uh, this year, the Fed's balance sheet's up about 70 percent, but these broad liquidity measures are up about 20 percent. Um, so this is much more bang for the buck than what we saw last time. Now, the velocity of money is still depressed. That's the story of low market interest rates. You know, we have a sudden and dramatic collapse in the economy that's taken shape. But the recovery off of this collapse should be much more vigorous than, than the recoveries after the last three recessions. And I think that's what a lot of commentators seem to be keying off is the slow recoveries after the last several downturns. Probably not a good model for the upswing that's in front of us. Final question. What do you how do the models kind of incorporate the idea that there's going to be a ton of debt on the corporate side to get through coronavirus and that repaying that debt means they're not investing. They're not growing profits the way that they once were, that that itself uh, slows down the recovery in the future. Yeah, I think that would be a bigger risk if the policy response weren't so aggressive. And, you know, the nature of this shock is different as well. Uh, the shock was not the result of corporate debt levels being high. The shock was a result of a pandemic uh, and shutdowns uh, as a way to deal with the pandemic. And, and so I think the debt levels are a concern, uh, but they will not uh, prevent this economy from starting to revive this is probably going to go down as the shortest recession in U.S. history, also the sharpest. So I'm not trying to downplay it, but the, the peak to trough um, downturn is probably going to end up totaling four or five months shortest in history. Yeah, and as you said, the S&P can maybe go up to 3,400 range uh, from where we are now. Again, this was a, even more out of consensus view when you first published it a couple of weeks ago. Mike, thanks so much for joining me to discuss it. 
Michael Darda Thank is you. the chief economist at MKM Partners. Up next, another streaming service hits the TV screen tomorrow amid a lot of competition and at a hefty price. We're going to speak with the man debuting HBO Max next. As we head to break, check out shares of Facebook on pace for its eighth straight day of trading gains. That's the longest winning streak for Facebook since September of 2015. The shares have added over 20 percent or just about 20 percent over the past three months. As investors are optimistic about stabilization and advertising, up about half a percent extending that streak today. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tomorrow, another streaming service joins an already crowded marketplace, HBO Max making its debut. And from content to timing to its higher price tag, there are some challenges. For more, I'm joined by Julia Borson along with Bob Greenblatt. He is the chairman of Warner Media Entertainment and direct to consumer. Julia? Thanks so much, Kelly. And Bob Greenblatt, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, just the day ahead of HBO Max launching. Yes, nice to be here. So happy to be here. Um, so, Bob, this is this is quite uh, intense timing for you to launch a new service. It's more expensive than Netflix's most popular service. You're launching with just about a half dozen original shows. And we're also seeing sports start to come back with the promise of more sports coming back. Are you concerned that consumers won't want to pay for yet another streaming service right now? Actually, um, to the contrary, I think we are feeling really good about what we have to offer we have this incredible array of programming, not only new originals, but we have the entire HBO service. We have these deep, deep libraries through Warner Brothers. We have third-party acquisitions, um, the Studio Ghibli library, the BBC library. We have so many things to offer. We really think this is you know, a great proposition. And we're a little late to the game, but uh, no time like the present. Well, you are, are a little bit late to the game. Of course, we have Disney Plus has already over 50 million paying subscribers. Um, and you're coming to market at a time when we're, you know, we're entering a recession. A lot of people are unemployed right now. Are you concerned about that price point um, and the fact that there are so many streaming services out there? You know, of course, we're always going to be a little concerned. Um, and we didn't expect this pandemic to be, you know, hitting us at this moment in time. Um, but we also really feel good about where HBO has been in this marketplace for so long at this price point. And what we're really giving people is all of the HBO service, but twice the content with all this new additional content. And so we feel good about the price point. And also the fact that people are wanting to consume more content now being home and, and sort of being in this situation that we're in. So, uh, again, we're, we're feeling pretty bullish on the whole thing. Now, um, Bob, you have talked about how there is an ad-supported version that's in the works. A lot of talk about this maybe being something that launches next year. Where does that stand now? Are you trying to accelerate the launch of an ad-supported version so you could have something lower cost on the market? I think we're looking at that market very closely because, of course, it is good to offer the consumer a lower price point. Um, I, I think it's going to take us the better part of a year to get those plans together. Um, and, you know, we've always felt that certainly the HBO content exists in an ad-free environment. And to go that way initially, you know, was the right strategy for us. But I think you'll find something like that down the road. Just don't have, you know, the entire plan uh, put together yet. 
Um, now, um, in terms of the productions being impacted by COVID, you know, there's been stoppages of productions around the world right now. We're starting to see them happen again. But production stoppages have impacted your content pipeline. How much do you think we'll see that impact on the kinds of content that you'll be, be able to introduce within the first couple of months? And when do you expect to be able to start production again? Well, you won't see any real impact in the first couple of months. In fact, we're in pretty good shape through uh, the rest of the summer and into the early fall. The shows that we, you know, you might see impact on, uh, we would have been putting into production now for debut in the service later in the calendar year and into the first quarter of of the next year. Um, and, you know, look, we're in the same boat with everyone and, and hoping we can get shows back into production sooner than later. Um, we have so many people working on that front. The most important thing is safety. And, you know, we have to bring so many people together to a set in order to get one of these things up and running. Um, and I think it's going to be well into the fall before we get most of them back on their feet. Um, but there are some things that we're able to do between now and then, um, different kinds of shows that are shot, you know, a little bit more um, in the home. Or um, we, we just picked up the show with Selena Gomez and her grandparents and, and a cooking show, which she's been doing during, you know, this COVID situation. Um, we can probably put that show into production pretty easily. But getting these hundreds of people to the sets um, is really the most important thing. And safety and, and doing it right is the most important. Well, certainly a fascinating time for the industry. I wish we could talk more, but we'll have to have you back on to hear about how this launch goes. Bob Greenblatt, chief of HBO Max on the eve of that services launch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Kelly, back over to you. And Julia, thanks to you and to Mr. Greenblatt as well. We appreciate it. Coming up, April home sales coming in way better than expected as people were out house hunting despite most states being on lockdown. We'll dig into the surprising numbers. And coming up on Power Lunch, the CEO of Winnebago, Michael Happy, uh, joins us to discuss the surge in RV stocks as investors bet on a summer full of road trips. Don't miss it. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The home builder stocks getting a little boost uh, from today's positive housing data, but it was a big boost in the numbers. Sales of newly built homes were far better than expected in April. Let's get to Diana Olick in Washington with the numbers for us. Diana. Yeah, Kelly, new home sales actually came in with a slight gain in April, almost 1%. That may not seem like a lot, but the expectation was for a 22% drop. So while sales were still lower than a year ago, that was a huge surprise to the upside. In addition, we also saw a big price drop, part of which may have been due to the mix of homes selling. The strength was really in homes priced below $300,000. Also, sales were weakest in the West, which is the priciest region. Now, another help, a big drop in mortgage rates after they spiked in March. These sales numbers represent signed contracts, so people out shopping in April when rates were falling and giving buyers more purchasing power. Some are saying this is just more evidence of urban flight. That is the need for more space, especially outdoor space, as so many people continue to shelter at home. Kelly? We got a bidding war breaking out down the street now, Diana. I... It's crazy. Yeah, the bidding war numbers are going up, the competition is high, and the supply is low, and that's why the builders are seeing such demand. Yeah, you can tell people who just want to get out in a hurry, uh, leaving those cities. Diana, thanks so much. Diana Olick with the latest for us. Well, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.